Genesis chapter 1. Oh, sorry, I plowed right through that. Caleb, I'm sorry about that. Yeah. We were going to do the creation of the cross candles. We'll have Caleb blow out two next week. Yeah. Uh, they're gone, long gone. Yeah. Oh, well. It's funny, the first question we're going to talk about, do we live in a world of random events? <laughs> Before we begin here, and as a, we'll just make sure that Tim's not doing whatever he thinks, um, let's pray and ask God's blessing upon our time here. Dear Holy Father, thank you. Thank you for your word and for your truth. Help us to be people that Submit to what your word says. There are many times where our hearts and our minds can get so uh, driven by the culture around us that we soon forget that you are the king of all. And that before time and space, before ever we were, you were. Help us to have that eternal perspective. In your son's name we pray. Amen. The question I'm about ready to ask, and how we answer this question, is another dividing question. Many times how you answer a question puts you on one course or the other. Not only how you answer this will split between an atheistic, that there is no God worldview, and a biblical worldview, even how you answer this question can be even debated amongst believers on all of the specifics of that question. And the question that I'm about ready to ask is one that each one of us, I would say even here at CBC, understands and grasps, but I don't think we really truly, sadly, many times live out what we're about ready to study right now. Here's the question. Do we live in a world that is simply random event after another? Do we live in a world that is simply one random event after another random event with no purpose, no destination, just one thing after another, one more spinning of the earth, one more lap around the sun, and we just to do that continually until what? If you believe that there is no ultimate meaning to be found in this world, if you truly hold that, if you believe that there's no ultimate meaning, no ultimate purpose, the way you live your life then, if you allow that to logically play out, that there is no reason for this, there is no ultimate purpose for that, just a bunch of random events, one after another, the only way to find meaning, the only way to find purpose then, is to do something, and then just pretend that it has meaning or purpose to feel good about it. So I just do this, and then I just pretend that that had meaning and that had purpose. Many in this world are struggling with this concept. There's a big word, if you will put ism next to something and you say it, everybody goes, oh wow, that sounds exciting, then you have to define it. Um, and so, one of the struggles that we have, and you may even hear of this term before, they, the term is called an existential crisis. Most of us know what a crisis is, but most of us go, I have no idea what an existential crisis is. Well, existential crisis comes from a view called existentialism. Imagine that, all right? 
And what is existentialism, most of you would ask? Well, existentialism is an existentialist is one who is willing to admit that there is no ultimate purpose. All right, this is obviously not a biblical worldview. This is someone who goes, I'm willing to at least tell you there is no ultimate purpose. All right, other than just what is at this moment, we are just hurling towards nothingness, from nothingness to nothingness. There isn't anything. And so what happens in an existentialist, he gets into a problem and he gets into this crisis because then it's like, well, what's the point of anything and why do we do anything if there's no real ultimate purpose then there's no point in even getting up and moving today because what are we doing the same meaningless thing we did yesterday now we're going to do the same meaningless thing we have now and so an existential crisis when it happens in our world and this is happening across the board in our world an existential crisis is one that is constant worry one that involves a lot of anxiety and depression the person who's going through an existential crisis has no motivation, low energy, and they remove themselves from society because there's nothing to live for anyway. And so they say. But Satan and his way of thinking is not going to let this go. Here's what Satan has done. In our day and age, Satan has said, as the evil in this world has said, what we're going to do is we're going to create a platform called social media. So we have our existential crisis, no real meaning, so here's what we do. We put the meaningless thing we have just done on the social media platform, and now I look for the rest of you to give me meaning. So the more likes you give me, the more followers I have, now give me meaning, because there is no ultimate purpose, only that I have followers following me, because what these followers are saying is, we think what your meaningless stuff has more meaning than my meaningless stuff, and I'll watch you do your meaningless stuff as we just spin in this world into meaninglessness. And I know that you're really encouraged right now. But this is the world we live in. Because there is no ultimate purpose, there is no ultimate whatever, and all of a sudden we get Genesis 1-1 speaking volumes into our lives, and what has happened is because we are so saturated with this type of thinking, it has impacted our thinking. So I'll summarize a secular worldview. A secular worldview proclaims that we are, we meaning everything here, is a series of random events happening on an isolated planet in the universe that just so happened to have a group of primates involved for one purpose and one purpose alone is not to die. So the only major purpose that our world has, if you push them, if you push every ism, if you push everyone who is unsaved and is not following after God, what is their ultimate purpose? And they will have to say at the end of the day, survive to tomorrow. And this is literally, we have a theory that says the, the strong will survive. The weak will die, the strong survive, and it's literally called the survival of the fittest. And if you ask the most brilliant, we use that in quotes, minds of our day, they will tell us our number one goal is to save the fleeting resources of this world so we have enough resources to get us to another planet so when we outlive these resources, we can keep the resources over there alive and well, and there's no other purpose other than that. This is why we have a huge rise. When, we church, when the world rejects Christianity, you have a huge rise in worshiping the planet through environmentalism because that's all you got, and when it's gone, we got nothing else. 
And so now the religion of saving the planet is what it's all about, and we miss all of these things. And so you realize at the end of the day, if you're a secular worldview, you have nothing because every day you put one more hamburger in your mouth, you're destroying resources that will never come back. Go enjoy your McDonald's, right? And so we live in this world. But what is a Christian worldview? A Christian worldview boldly proclaims into this lost and dying world that God, before the foundation of the world, decreed the beginning from the end, and that plan is moving forward to a glorious end. Genesis 1.1, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. And what we're going to see today, we're going to look at multiple scriptures and talk about what God actually did before the foundation of the world. Because if we don't understand that, we will not understand then what moved him to create and everything else that comes from it. If we don't go back to the very beginning, and I would even argue if you want to go before the beginning, we will not understand what brought about the beginning and where we're moving towards. So let's take a look here real quick. So Acts 15. Turn your Bibles to Acts 15, where I'm going to argue that the biblical worldview literally says nothing happens randomly. All right, point number one is nothing happens randomly. All right, there is no randomness in our world. And so we're going to look at a couple of texts here, and we're going to look at how the Bible wrestles through these things. So Acts chapter 15, if you look there at the beginning of the chapter, they're going to talk about the Jerusalem Council. And in Acts chapter 15, you have a council in Jerusalem, hence the term Jerusalem Council. Great name for a council being held in Jerusalem. And what was going on in this was, as Christ ascends into heaven at the beginning of Acts, the disciples are going out, and as they're sharing the gospel, mainly they're going to the synagogues, teaching that Jesus rose from the dead, and you got Gentiles getting saved. And all of a sudden, everybody goes, whoa, 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 what are we doing here? Do these Gentiles need to convert to Judaism? Or what's going on here? And they have a big old meeting where they go, we've got to figure out what's going on because the same things that happened at Pentecost are happening amongst the Gentiles and they're being gathered in. And what does this body of Christ look like? What's going on with here? What's happening? And the debate is going on. Do Gentiles need to become Jews in order to be saved? Do they need that covenant sign of circumcision that was given to Abraham and his descendants? Do we need to do the same thing here? What's going on? And they all meet together. Peter and Paul are going back and forth with this. What about what's happening here? What's going on over there? And they're arguing back and forth. Have some phenomenal insight into church history, but we're not going to break down the whole chapter here. All of a sudden, in the middle of all of this, James has something to say. So we're at verse 18. But I'm going to go back to 12. And all the assembly fell silent, and they listened to Barnabas and Paul, and they related with what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. And after they finished speaking, James replied, Brothers, listen to me. Simon has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. So what we see here is that God is visiting the Gentile people, gathering a people to himself for the glory and honor of God. And so what we're seeing here is that Peter is testifying that God is calling the Gentiles to himself, a unique and peculiar people calling himself. And James then pauses and he's reminding us that this is not a random event that's happening. 
He is not saying, well, after the cross, we have no idea what's going on, and now Gentiles are coming into the Jews, and what's going on here? Is God even on his throne? What's happening? And James, in a way, pauses and he goes, I'm going to tell you something. This was prophesied of old. And here's what he says. He's, he's actually quoting Amos 9, 11, and 12, but it's just interesting here. What James is going to do is he's going to do what many of the, of the uh, New Testament um, apostles would do. Sometimes they would just take a couple of quotes and just put them all together, all right? That, this is very biblical to do that, all right? Now, in, in the English-speaking world, you have to delineate between this quote or that quote and everything else, but in the Jewish world, you could say, as it is written, and just bring all sorts of texts all together because it was written here. So here's what we see in Amos 9.11. He says, After this I will return, and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins, and I will destroy it that remnant of mankind may seek the Lord and the Gentiles who are called by my name. Pause here. The Gentiles will be called by the same name the Jewish people are called by. This is not a series of random events that is happening. And notice what he does. He actually adds Isaiah 45, 12, a line from that at the end of verse 18. For, you, for those of you who may have a King James Bible, it says, Known unto God are all his works from the very beginning to the end. The ESV shortens that phrase and says, Known from of old. All right, this is the same quote out of Isaiah 45, 12, that basically if you're summarizing what he's saying is all of these have, things are happening because they were decreed to have happened from of old. And what James is trying to tell everybody is basically, pause here. You're wrestling through something that God has planned from the very beginning. This is not a random thing, even though in our day and age, we're sitting here going, what are we doing with this? What are we doing with that? And all of a sudden, in front of us, James says, wait a minute, Amos talked about this a long time ago. This was planned from the very beginning. Gentiles getting saved was part of the plan from the very beginning. And here's what he says in verse 19 then. In light of what God had planned from the beginning, therefore my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God. So if I'm summarizing what James says here, James is basically saying all of this was part of God's plan from the very beginning. Relax and watch the mighty hand of God bringing those who are apart from the law, apart from the prophets, bringing you and I as Gentiles into the kingdom of God through the shed blood of Christ. What James is reminding them is this was decreed from the beginning, decreed of old. And what James is teaching here clearly is that one day, what we will see at the end in Revelation 7, 9, that one day around the throne of God will be people out of every tongue, tribe, and nation, and that is not a fluke. It has been decreed from the very beginning, played out in time and space. And so what James is saying here, what Amos is saying through the prophesying of the Word of God that was given even to Amos and given to Isaiah as well, that we are not living in a plan A, and I'm going to give you the long story here. Let's just start at the very beginning. Plan A was not Adam and Eve in the garden, and God had no idea what was happening next. When God created the world, He knew everything that was going to happen. He did not, when the fall in Genesis 3 comes, say, oh no, i got to come up with a plan now. He did not react to mankind's fall. 
We do not have a reactionary God. He decreed it from the beginning to the end, and we will see other passages of Scripture that clearly teach this. But here at CBC, we believe that God had decreed the beginning from the end. There is no learning that He has got to do along the way and changing of plans. Genesis 3 did not take God by surprise. It is very clear that these things were planned from, with, from old. Nor did when the world rebelled against no, rebelled and God says to Noah, I'm going to destroy it all over and start over. It was not as if God said, I'm trying the best I can to keep things on the straight and narrow here, but we can't, we've got to restart it. And it wasn't when God restarted it with Noah that he was like, all right, Noah, you're going to make this thing work out and things just really trashed. Now we're on plan C. And then plan D was Abraham, because Noah's descendants weren't so hot either. Now plan D is Abraham, and Abraham doesn't seem to be working out so well either. And so now all of a sudden we've got to figure this out. So what we'll do is plan E will be Jesus will come and try to establish a kingdom. And Jesus comes and tries to establish a kingdom, and they crucify him. Now we're on plan F, all right, and we're just continually going through this. And God's saying, I'm trying everything I can here, folks. I mean, because you hold the final trump card, and so I'm doing everything I can. And you know what? I, 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 I planned it to happen this way, but you know what, guys? You're just really making a mess of it. And, you know, and so then we sit here and go, no. That's utter, I would even call it blasphemous when we think that way. Because what you're doing is saying that God has not prophesied what will happen from the beginning to the end. You can't believe in any prophecy if you believe that, because God could not say anything about the future because he has no clue what's happening in the future. What we see here very clearly is James, when there's turmoil, James goes, hey, whoa, guys, listen. God has planned this. This is part of his plan playing out in time and space. Relax. Point number two. God's plan not only has been planned, but it will be accomplished. We're going to look at Ephesians. We're going to just read verses 3 through 11. God's plan not only was planned from the very beginning, but will be accomplished, which I would argue what James is saying as well. But Paul here is going to say the same thing. Ephesians chapter 1, uh, verses 3 through 11. Blessed be God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. In love He predestined us for the adoptions through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of His will, to the praise of His glory, with which He has blessed us in the Beloved. In Him we have a redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of His grace which He lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of His will according to His purpose which He set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in Him, things in heaven and things on earth. In Him we have an adopted... We have attained an inheritance, being predestined according to the purpose of Him who works all things according to the counsel of His will. Now, what I'm going to do is we're going to, in a way, we're, fl we're going to fly over this passage like you would fly over the United States, and we're going to be just looking at different, bigger, larger picture issues here that are going on, because there is so much here. This passage, what it does is it gives us a glimpse into the saving work of God decreed from the foundation of the world and is glorious and is also humbling at the same time. And so what I want to do here is I want to take a moment here and pause. 
And I want to look at this, this passage here from a whole Bible standpoint. What we see here is that salvation was planned before the foundation of the world, which argues back to my point that the plan of salvation was not a reaction to the fall of humans into sin. God did not, after Adam fell, said, well, I better fix this, and then come up with an idea. This was part of God's plan from the very beginning. Now, the wrestle is, what do we do with the questions that arise from that? But here's what we don't do. Ignore the fact that this verse is very clear that from the beginning of all time, God planned salvation. Before mankind was around, God planned. Also, it gives us a reason why God chose to save. The reason was for the good pleasure of His will, for His glory. He did not choose to save for anything other than to display His glory. This is what we see here in this text. We also see that salvation will be accomplished because God is working all things to the counsel of His will. God is working all things to the council's will. And why can God work all things to the council as well? Is because God is the one who is the creator and sustainer of all things according to the council of his will. There is no random moment in time. God is working all things together for his glory and his ultimate end. That is why we can even look at this text too and see that God is the initiator and the author of salvation. God is the initiator and the author of salvation. The reason why we can point to that is because God planned this before man even existed. God's plan of salvation was to play out in time and space. Look at verse 11. Having predestined according to the purpose of Him who, what? Works all things according to the counsel of His will. So all things are working according to what God has willed to take place. This is where we have to start. Now, I know there's going to be questions that are going to arise, and we'll talk about that in a second. But we must start where Scripture starts. We can't start where a secular worldview starts. We have to start where the Bible starts and then works and answer questions from there. A.W. Pink, in his Attribute of God, said, God was under no constraint, no obligation, no necessity to create. That He chose to do was purely a sovereign act on his part, caused by nothing outside of himself, determined by nothing but his own mere good pleasure, for he works all things after the counsel of his will. That he did create at all was to display his glory. We do not start with man and work our way back to try to understand God. We have to start with God on His terms and work our way this way. And this is the wrestle because we live now, and many of us like to look at history going back this way. But what Genesis says, no, we look at history moving this way, that in the beginning God, and He was the one that decreed the beginning to the end. Yes, we have to wrestle with what about evil? What about all those other things we're coming? But the Bible, I believe, gives us answers on that, but we don't work this way. How can a loving God allow all these evil things to happen? No, we have to start over here and go, wait a minute. Here's what the Bible is very clear about. God has decreed the beginning from the end, and he is working all things out to the counsel of his will. So now my question is, well, maybe I may not understand God's working his counsel out to his will, because I may not understand what I'm seeing in front of me is how you working all this out for your good. Really, this is part of your plan? Because if not, what we're living in right now is going this whole attack on marriage. God was like, I tried to write it as best I could, never knew that was going to come about. No, we don't live that way. The Bible authors don't write like that. 
The Bible authors write and they communicate to us because it is God who is writing through them that he has decreed the beginning from the end, that he is working all things together for his glory to be displayed. And so here's the hard part. We like to look in time and space and we like to say, God, how are you going to get glory out of any of this? And God said, I had that already decreed from the very beginning. Be patient. Do you trust me? And we sit here and go, well, you know what? If a, how could a good and loving God, and then we just go down the, the rabbit trail of, all right, that's not, yes, we have to deal with that. I'm not going to ignore that. You following this? But where do we start? That God is a sovereign creator of all things, and all things are working together for his good glory, for his plan and his glory. This is where we have to pause. Because in the beginning, God created. He did not create it and then step back like the DSA. Nor did he say, in the beginning, God created, and he said, you guys figure it out from there. Nor did he say, in the beginning, God created, and he said, well, there's certain things that I can do and I can't do, and you humans are going to have the final say. No, he said, in the beginning, God created, and he is preparing his plan, and his plan is being carried out day in and day out for his ultimate glory. There is no random events. Do we believe that? Or not? That's where the question arises. Now, not only was salvation planned, you get a glimpse into the glory of God and the Trinity in John 17. Turn to John 17. And in John chapter 17 here, what we see in front of us here is a beautiful look into the love that the Trinity had for one another. In Jesus' high priestly prayer, he prays while he's agonizing in the Garden of Gethsemane. John 17, we're actually going to start at verse 20. And Jesus here, praying and asking the Father some things. Here's what he says in verse 20 of John 17. I do not ask for these alone, but also for those who will believe in me through your word that they may be one just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be one in us, so that the world may believe that you sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given them, that they may be one as we are one. I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and love me even as you, as you love me. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am, to see my glory that you have given me because you love me before the foundation of the world. Third, we're going to see the love of God before creation. Here in this short passage of Scripture here, we see the beautiful look, and this is something that we could, we could dive into and break this down for year upon year of study. Here we see the Trinity functioning in perfect harmony and love for one another before the world began. The creation of the universe and the redemptive plan was for mankind to see and experience the love and unity of the Trinity. One of the things we will see when we are in heaven is the love that the Trinity has for one another, and it was not brought about now. It was from everlasting to everlasting. Because those whom God has redeemed will experience the glorification in heaven with Him. And so, when we think about these passages, there's one more we need to turn to. Turn to Titus 1. When we think about these passages here, when we think about, in the beginning, God, and as we, as we said last week, we were putting a stamp 
on history moving forward. And in Titus 1, 1 through 3, I think this is a phenomenal passage for us. Because as Paul here is writing to his another son in the faith, Titus here, first and second Timothy, then Titus. Titus here, we see that in history, history is moving to the day when all the redeemed will surround the throne of God, proclaiming his glory and the praise for all that he has done. But in the meantime, here's what Paul reminds them. Paul, a servant of God and apostle Lord Jesus Christ, for the sake of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness, in the hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began and at the proper time manifested his word through the preaching, which I have now entrusted by the command of our God and Savior. Here's what we see. Beloved, if you are sitting in this room saved, what we see is that your salvation was not a happen chance. It was not a random thing that took place. What we see here is that Paul's even saying to Titus that in time and space, not only had God decreed that one day you would be saved, what we're seeing here is that God decreed the ends to that means through the preaching of the Word of God that came. And what we do, beloved, we stand here and we, we pause and we just say, what amazing grace that it was. And then not only that, though, do we understand that God who's decreed the beginning from the end, we understand that our role is what, how did they hear? Through the preaching of the Word of God. And how is the preaching of the Word of God done? Through the proclaiming of the gospel truth. So we don't sit here and say, isn't that just great? What that does is motivates us to understand that it's through the preaching of God's Word that what He decreed from the beginning will happen. And so our role in this whole beautiful thing is to proclaim the Word of God to our dying breath to every tribe, tongue, and nation. What James said was going to happen because he's quoting Amos, which he's saying what God said at the very beginning. That is why Jesus will even look at Thomas and he says, not until I am lifted up. When I am lifted up, I will draw all men to myself. And what he's saying there is, I will draw people out of every tongue, tribe, and nation to myself through the redemptive plan that was planned before the foundation of the world. And the beautiful picture is that in time and space, we have a role to play in that through the faithful preaching and proclamation of the Word of God, that His Spirit will awaken in, in the eyes of the believer and call them to Himself. And so what is our job? What's our daily marching orders every day? Is to go into a lost and dying world boldly with the gospel, declaring that God has come to save, to seek and to save the lost, and we proclaim the gospel message in all of its fullness, day in and day out. And you know what God will do? Do what He has decreed from the very beginning. And we sit there in awe and we say, how marvelous, how wonderful that God would even redeem anyone, let alone me. How vile I am that he would redeem me. And we stand there in awe and that motivation is not to sit here and say, what a great guy I am. It's what a great God he is because he knows how bad I am and he knows how evil I am. And we also then, as redeemed people, know the only thing that's going to solve any of the issues in this world is a faithful proclamation of the gospel. And this is what Paul is telling us. He's manifest through the preaching of the gospel. Paul was entrusted with it. What are we entrusted with? The gospel. And what is the gospel? The gospel is this. Number one, there is no random events. Let's just get through that. That God has decreed the beginning from the end, and he's even decreed the means, and the means is the church of God being faithful to boldly proclaim the gospel to a lost and dying world, and that salvation will be accomplished. Because what does Paul say here? The God who cannot lie. So if God has decreed it, it will take place. 
And so we stand here not in our own, look how great I am or anything else. For those of us who truly understand salvation, beloved, we will be humbled on our face and say, your grace is amazing because it saved a wretch like me. And so what that motivation goes and says, if it saved me, it can save if you want to put thee, if you want to put rhymes there, it can save you as well. And so our proclamation is to everyone who has ever lived in our world that we interact with and saying, look to Christ, to Him and to Him alone. So in summarizing this, there are no random events. God has designed all things and is accomplishing them to work together from the very beginning just as God has planned it. So what do we, what do we take from a passage like these passages? What do we take that in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth and what He decreed from the beginning will take place? Because if He has not decreed from the very beginning, how can you even pen the words of Revelation that tell us what, how it's going to end? If he has not decreed the beginning from the end and things are happening randomly, how can he ever say that evil will be no more and that death will be no more? How do we know that's the promise? Because how do we know if these things can just happen on their own, how do we know not in eternity future that it'll just come back again? The answer is because God has decreed it, and Paul says it here, he cannot lie. What he has promised, he will do. When I was little... We used to sing a song about, like, God is able to do everything, right? And then you come across verses like this. There's actually a couple of things that God, by his nature, cannot do. And one of them is he cannot lie, because that's the very nature of God. And this is why, and this is the beautiful thing of this, that this promise before the ages began, what we get to see is played out in time and space through the manifestation through the manifested Word of God through preaching. I mean, isn't it bizarre? Paul even talks about this, the foolishness of preaching, all right, that God would use our stammering tongues to call His church to Himself. I mean, think about that for a moment. That when we, you share the Gospel, if you've, by God's grace, if you've ever gotten to share the Gospel, I am sure without a doubt it's clunky. You probably walked away going, I totally ruined that thing. I probably have no idea what's going on. You were probably so nervous, you were sweating like crazy while you were doing it. You're probably sitting there going, I, I mean, and we sit there and go, by God's grace, isn't it amazing that the Gospel is the power to save, not you? That you didn't have to sit there and say, my well-polished answer, our response to the lost and dying world that is having one existential crisis after another is there is ultimate purpose and it is found in Christ and Christ alone. Look and be saved. That's our call. And it's motivated not out of anything other than we want God to get the glory above all because as we share the gospel, even if the person rejects it, downright front, they say the dumbest thing ever. You were able to say what glorious things God has done. And you had an opportunity to glorify your Savior in that. And these are the times where we have to pause and say, in front of us here, do we really believe that in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth and everything that even has to do? I'm still wrestling with how many messages we need to work through that because the whole text of Scripture is built upon the fact that there is no random event. So what does that mean? That means on your way home today, when you slide off into the ditch, you don't go, oh, random event God didn't know about. No, we would say, phenomenal opportunity here to wrestle through that God has something I need to learn. 
Because if you believe in random events, what hope is there then when you're diagnosed with cancer? What hope is there then when all of the sufferings and trials come? Because what did Peter tell us? We should know this as we go through 1 Peter, that all this suffering, all of these things are working together for your glory. I mean, not for, you, for God's glory and your good. There is no random events. It wasn't like, oh no, ran- Nero just happened to come in and God's like, oh boy, what are we going to do here? No, that was appointed by God. Officials are appointed by God. We hear that. You read through Proverbs, you see all these things. Even the, the throwing of the dice is in God's hands. Now, that should not mean we go gamble and say, well, the Lord wanted me to win or the Lord wanted me to lose. That's not what the text is saying. What the text is saying is even random events, God has orchestrated and brought about for His glory. If not a single hair can fall off your head, not a single sparrow can fall to the ground without God knowing and appointing those things that take place, can we not trust Him? That what He has given us, not only will He be with us, that He will accomplish what He is doing here on this earth. And so what is in front of us is this. The Christian walk is a walk of trust and faith. Do we really trust Him? Do we really trust Him with those moments that seem to be here for a moment and you go, what's happening here? I don't understand this. I'm blinded by what's in front of me. How is this working anything for your glory? The answer is, do you trust Him? Because we're about ready to stand here and sing about the ancient words that are ever true. That that we don't need to be reinvented. They don't need to be shifted or moved to the to the wind of our culture, we can stand on them. Because I really do believe that a missionary who is going to a foreign country to glorify God by the sharing of the gospel there, if they do not understand Revelation 7, 9, that around the throne of God will be people from every tongue, tribe, and nation, and they don't understand that their job is to proclaim the glories of God to a lost and dying world, Because you look at these missionaries who have gone and have struggled, have not seen any, if you want to call it, success. But what is success in missions? Boldly proclaiming the truth of God. And that's what we're called to do. We're not called to keep tallies of all these other things, because it was God who saved them anyway. Sadly, many times, let's be honest, when our stammering tongues get in the way, many times in spite of us, thankfully the gospel is the power, right? And so we, these are the things we do. These are the things that we should be known as a group of loving people who love one another and love God and love their unsaved people, their relatives and friends or whatever, because they know that only through Christ and Christ alone will salvation come. So let's stand here in a moment. I'm going to pray and ask God's help as we walk through this. Now, I want to be clear. I know there's a lot of strings that have not been tied. All right, well, until the Lord tarries, we'll just keep working at that. But here's what I, my prayer is this. If we don't start at the right foundation, we're going to th- get a way off. Like if a rocket is off a little bit, 10 years from now, you've missed the moon. All right, and I don't care what the teachers say. You did not land amongst the stars like all those little teachers things. If you shoot for the moon and you miss, you land amongst the stars. If it's, that's a wonderful thing, you're dead in space. All right, so like if you don't hit the moon, you're de- you die. All right, so like let's not go down in some weird little 
rhymey thing, all right? Because we want to hit the, you know, like the moon is, there's only one option. You've got to get around the moon to come back, all right? So when it comes to the Word of God, we have no, oh, we'll just land amongst the stars if it's, no. By God's grace, we want to take our time and we want to go no further than what Scripture allows, all right? And so we speak the truth and where Scripture is silent, we need to be silent. But here's what we know that God has planned the beginning from the end and our response is to trust Him. Let's pray. Dear Holy Father, these truths are not anything new. They are ancient. When we pause and think about the counsel of God that happened before the foundation of the world, our minds have no way of grasping even close to what that was like. What does the conversation of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit look like as they plan redemption. But dearly Father, we know, without a shadow of a doubt, that you're working all things together for your glory. May we rest in that. In your son's name we pray. Amen.